This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Welcome to my vagina. In here, I make the rules. Rule number one, keep it real, hun. And that means no hormones, because hormones just weren't right for me. Woomba. It's a robot, and it cleans my business, my lady business, and I like that. Let's talk about the V word, not vagina, literally the V word. When we talk like that about reproductive health, we're apologizing. So consider this an unapology. Vagina. One of those clips was from a comedy skit. Could you tell which one? Well, the other two were from ads for birth control products. Those real commercials caused a lot of ears to perk up and eyes to pop. Now, it's probably not hyperbole to say that human female sexual anatomy has been and still is one of the most politicized, misconstrued, and misunderstood aspects of biology. Even I have to admit, when we booked our next guest and we discussed as a team, we couldn't help but snicker whenever someone would utter the word vagina. So why is that? What's so funny? Or so embarrassing? Why does it feel inappropriate to say or discuss the word out loud when, frankly, it's not? Here to demystify and empower that word is Chicago-based physician Nicole Williams. She's an OBGYN, women's health advocate, and founder of the Gynecology Institute of Chicago. And Nicole's new book is titled, This is How You Vagina, All About Your Vajayjay and Why You Probably Shouldn't Call It That. And Dr. Nicole Williams felt compelled by her patients to write the book. I've been in practice for nearly 20 years. Sometimes I hate to think about it like that. But over this time, I kept noticing that my patients were asking the same questions. And this is not just young patients or older patients. This was across the entire spectrum. Women just had a lot of the same concerns. And during the pandemic, when I had a little downtime, and we all had a little downtime, and I decided to kind of write a love letter to them and a love letter to their vaginas as well. (laughs) Has the perception of female anatomy changed throughout the years to you? I would love to say that it has, and it has somewhat, but not as much as it needs to be. As you noticed in those clips, these things are even quite modern. But um, if we go back to ancient times, and I talk about this in the book, that people thought the uterus was a monster, And if a woman presented with a headache, for example, they thought that the uterus actually migrated to the woman's head to wreak havoc. So wherever there was a problem, it had to do with the female reproductive system. They kept blaming the vagina. But mom, I shower every morning. How can I possibly have intimate odor? Easy. You're a girl and you're living. Try this douche. Now with medicated chemicals. Please make it stop. The vagina is not to blame. And even if you think about that today, if a woman happens to get angry about something, then what do they say? Mm. 
they say, oh, well, she's PMSing. She, we're not allowed to be normal human beings. So I wrote this book to really help to change those misconceptions. And speaking of misconceptions, when you think of the word itself, uh, vagina, as the mom of two girls, doctor, I actually remember a moment when they were very young and I had to stop for a minute. I really had to think about what I was going to teach them to call their vaginas as if, you know, almost as if I had to come up with another name. Because when I was a kid, my mom, like so many other parents, kind of gave it a code name. Yes. Even when I was growing up, Sasha, and um, I had a cousin who was babysitting me on there. I was maybe about four. And for some reason that just stuck out in my mind. Maybe that's why I'm a gynecologist today. She called it a kitty cat. And um, when we come up with these euphemisms for the word vagina, we kind of start to negate her. We decrease her power. And by starting at such an early age, by misconstruing the word, then that becomes embedded in our personas. And this is why we need to start changing that. Call a vagina a vagina. You argue in your book that commercialism contributes to the way that women perceive their vagina. Can you explain that? Ah, commercialism. Thank you so much for asking that one. This goes back as far as we've ever had advertising. I actually write in the book, there was an ad for Lysol. And of course, we think of Lysol as a you know disinfectant for surfaces and, and such around the house. But in actuality, Lysol was marketed as a vaginal disinfectant. And you should see some of the ads, which I have in, in the book, that makes the woman seem as if she is dirty, unclean, yeah. unworthy. And this goes back to the 50s. Please, Fred, don't leave. Peggy's husband might have stayed if she wasn't so careless about her feminine hygiene. Douse your vaginal tissue with this concentrated germicide. The burning means it's working. Another thing is people, especially these people in these corporations, see women as just a purchaser, a consumer. So they add extra fears about what could be, quote unquote, wrong with their vaginas to try to sell them products. This is stunning stuff. You know, and like we heard at the top, doctor, you know, there are some commercials and dialogue on TV shows that have leaned into deconstructing the objectification of female anatomy. What are your overall thoughts on where we are today when it comes to that? Well, we're getting a little better And I think the new generation, with their thinking on gender and gender fluidity, it's improving. And it's going to take some time because when we use the objectified female form to sell basically everything from bottled water to like liquid Drano, it's incumbent. It's really important that we who are consumers of these products, meaning basically all of us, to speak truth to that power and say, hey, you know what, do we need to have this to sell this product? And then in this way, uh, hopefully we can be able to uh, reach parity. Mm -hmm. So you could face pushback from more conservative women who find this reimagining of the vagina inappropriate, but also pushback from progressive women who fear that this leaning in might give license to more of the historic misogynistic behavior and policies. What do you say to those arguments? Well, I wrote the book to spark a dialogue, to promote thought, to, I, I say, uh, to unite vagina owners worldwide. 
Now, I, everyone won't agree with me, but at least we can have a civil discourse. So when you talk about more conservative women, and I actually do touch on the fact that we as America, as a country, was founded by Puritans. And perhaps this might be one of the reasons, not the only reason. So that's why I said we need to spark a dialogue. This might be, and it's something to discuss, to think, and to debate. Now, when you're talking about progressive women, I posit to them, we should learn and understand our history. And in this way, we don't repeat it. You have a foreword written by Dr. Joycelyn Elders, who's the uh, former U.S. Surgeon General. How did that come about? So Dr. M. Joycelyn Elders is a sorority sister of mine. And I remember from the 1990s, I was so proud to know that there was an African-American woman who was the Surgeon General of the United States. And this is in the 90s during the Clinton administration. And she had some actually rather, at that time, radical beliefs about sex and sexuality. Dr. Elders, conservatives and religious groups challenged you on issues as Surgeon General. Yes. What issues disturbed them the most? It made no sense, but the issues related to comprehensive health education including sex education in schools. I thought everybody would agree with that. I can imagine people not agreeing with that. The issue of teaching young people about the importance of if they choose to be sexually active, to make sure they used a condom. You know, to me, that made good sense. In the area of AIDS, well, they thought, well, that's giving them permission to go have sex. Well, far as I'm concerned, when you've got the highest teenage pregnancy rate in the industrialized world, Nobody needs to give them permission. They're already doing it. And when she expressed those beliefs, she was fired in the Clinton administration, no less. And we know about what happened during the Clinton administration. And this woman was fired. And when I was writing the book, I started thinking about her. And I just reached out to her and I said, you know, I think that you got a bad rep. And here is my work. Please read it and just let me know what you think. And she was just so gracious and wrote me a really wonderful forward. And I'm just so grateful to be able to have uh, have spoken with her. And I hope to meet her soon one day. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And our guest is Nicole Williams. She's a Chicago-based physician, OBGYN, and women's health advocate also the founder of the Gynecology Institute of Chicago. Her new book is titled, This is How You Vagina, All About Your Vajayjay and Why You Probably Shouldn't Call It That. So, Doctor, how can women begin to take back the word vagina? I want us to take back this word from the annals of fear and disbelief and misconception by just referring to her in the proper terms. Because, like I said, I don't want us to otherize the vagina. And one of the reasons why it's so easy to otherize the vagina is because it's tucked in. It's hidden. And it's much more difficult to access than the male genitalia. The male genitalia is right out there. You can see it. It's very easy to access, very easy to name. But the vagina has a different perception. And by referring to her as this proper word, vagina then we can take ownership and our power back. I can't help but notice you refer to vagina in in the third person, her. Yes, she, her. Why? I do that because I want to not only make her normal, but to give her a little personification. 
as opposed to referring to it as an it, because when you refer to something as an it, it's easier to make it something quote unquote other than, but when you give it a pronoun, it becomes more personal. Thinking of your practice, what kind of questions do patients ask you most commonly about their lady parts? Is there a running theme? The biggest and most common question that my patients ask me is, am I normal? Really? And yes, everybody just wants to make sure that they're okay. And in the book, because I did a lot of research on what is normal, I found an art installation done by a British gentleman who did more than 400 plaster casts of vagina and vulvae. And what we discovered is that abnormal, quote unquote, meaning the labia may be mismatched. It's the normal. So abnormal is normal because when you look at all of these women, no two were alike. And I reassure my patients every single day that most of the time they're normal. You also do cosmetic surgery and other structural procedures. Some of these procedures, doctor, I don't think many women know are even possible to do. So can you talk a bit about them and and, uh, the medical as well as the therapeutic benefits there? Yes, Sasha. And I decided to do these procedures because I really wanted to stand by my personal mantra of being non-judgmental. So if a patient who is, of course, of age and making an autonomous decision about her body, I want to be able to empower her with that. Also, as a gynecologic surgeon, I would prefer that it be someone like myself who respects the anatomy, who's not going to make a cookie cutter vagina versus a cosmetic surgeon, because I'm going to respect their anatomy And I'm going to inform them of what's important to retain as opposed to remove. So when I do these surgeries, it is really my goal to educate. They're gaining more popularity over these years, aren't they? Yes, yes, very, very much so. And I'm happy to say that I've actually talked several of these patients out of the surgery because we have to think about the reasons why we want to perform those types of uh, labial reduction surgeries. Is it for yourself or is it for someone else? And I've had some very detailed discussions with many of my patients, and I'm happy to say I've talked them out of it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Do you do something that's kind of like a re-virginizing procedure? <laughs> no, no, we, we don't do that. There is nothing like that. That, <laughs> that is all we got. And on top of that, I would love to get rid of that whole entire term virgin and, you know, bringing back virginity because... We put too much stock in the first sexual experience. When we do that, then it becomes such a major event. Mm -hmm. And by having patients who have had sex, who want to go back to being a virgin, it makes it almost as if we are putting too much stock in not having sex. But what we do at our office is for primarily perimenopausal and postmenopausal women who suffer from vaginal dryness. And that's a procedure that we do perform in our office because, like I say, I want my patients to enjoy a very healthy sex life all the way through. You are also an international traveler. Do you see any differences in how female anatomy is discussed in some of those countries that you visited versus here in the States? 
Absolutely. So I've been to um, seven or eight countries doing surgery, necessary surgery, fibroid surgery, ovarian cyst surgery, uh, repairing fistula and the like. But what I've noticed is that, for example, in the Dominican Republic, I had several of our patients who'd had five, six, seven, eight children by the time they were 30. And it seems like it was very patriarchal society. And we performed um, some ovarian cyst surgeries on patients who were really requesting their tubes to be tied because they just could not handle another child. Wow. And when I was working, yeah, when I was working in Ghana, we do a lot of surgeries on fibroids because if a woman in that country, and this is, you know, I don't want to say it's a blanket association, but there's a lot, a lot of stock placed on your ability to have a child. So if you're suffering from fibroids and you are unable to have a child, your husband might just leave you for someone who can have a child. Uh, female genital cutting. Have you encountered that issue? Oddly enough, the place where I encountered female genital cutting was right here in Chicago. Wow. Yes. And I wrote about it in my book. I was still in training and we had the cutest patient. She couldn't have been any older. I think she's like 22 years old. So in our attending physician that night was a male. So he wasn't allowed in the room when we went to examine her. And of course, this is something I'd never seen before. We knew that something was wrong. Everything was sewn together and we were all just completely taken aback. And as a physician, you just have to maintain your poker face and do the delivery. Mm. And we had to separate the labia because they had been sewn shut. After she delivered, the mother-in-law demanded of us that we reapproximate everything that had been put together before. And we said, no, we can't do that. She needs to heal because this is America. Now, of course, she was an immigrant. And what was the saddest part to me was that we delivered a girl. Hmm. Wow. Okay. And I, I want to be clear, this is better identified as female genital mutilation. Mutilation. Yeah. Yes. What was your most interesting discovery that you made while researching and, and writing This Is How You Vagina? So the most interesting discovery that I made while writing This Is How You Vagina is the fact that the um, vaginal speculum that we use was actually not invented by a man. When I was in medical school, we were taught that the father of modern gynecology was a Dr. J. Marlon Sims, who owned and operated on slave women back in the 1800s. And he was purported to have invented this speculum, when in actuality, his speculum is more like a bent spoon. The vaginal speculum that we use was actually made by a French woman from the 1700s. She was a nurse midwife. The Boivin speculum has the screw down that everybody knows and hates, is much more similar to the one that we used. And also, there was an ancient speculum that was discovered outside of Pompeii that looks very similar to the one that we use today. Why did you think that including historical anecdotes in, in a book about female anatomy would be helpful? Because I want people to understand that misconceptions and myths and mythology about the vagina have been pervasive since antiquity. I want us to understand that there's nothing new under the sun about this. So when we learn this history and understand it and internalize it, then we can move forward. 
Can you compare and contrast how this field of yours has been taught over history? Oh, I love that question. So we'll just go back to Victorian ages. Women weren't even examined. We weren't even looked at. You kept your all your skirts on and the male, of course, because females weren't allowed to be physicians, just fumbled underneath the skirts. So we were never, ever truly examined appropriately. As time went on, we did realize that we actually do need to learn and understand the female anatomy. But here's another interesting tidbit. We did not add the clitoris as a part of anatomy books until around the 1970s and 80s. So this part, it wasn't in the main anatomy book until much more recent times. And now with MRI, we have realized a lot more about the female genitalia than we even knew. And this is like the late 1990s, early 2000s. Why? Why wasn't it part of books in in those early days? Oh, well, um, I even wrote in the book that it wasn't until I think it was like 1984, 1994, that the NIH mandated that women be included in all clinical studies. Wow. Yeah. We've come a long way. We have come a long way, baby, and things are changing, and let's hope that we can continue this path. What are the gaps now in how it's being taught and understood today? I think some of the gaps that we have today are not only anatomical, but cultural. Because when I write in the book about how women are treated, there is such a gap between how African-American women brown women, Latinx women are treated from white women. And this is still going on right now because even in my own hospital, there have been times when I have to say, hey, did you give my patient pain medicine? Because Mm. we have been bred to believe that we are quote unquote strong women and that we are so stoic. And that harkens back to the writings of J. Marlon Sims, who said that his patients, because there was no anesthesia then, they were so stoic and they were able to take pain. That's what needs to change recognize when people are in pain and treat it appropriately. Who's your intended audience here? Is this one for the eighth grade health class or are we talking strictly to grown women? When I wrote the book, I was actually speaking in the voice to my patients. But as I was going through it, I realized that this might be a really good primer to give a new pubescent girl to read so she can understand that her vagina is completely normal It's a completely normal part of her anatomy. She should understand it and love and respect it. Well, the book is certainly very interesting. I learned a ton by by taking this in. That is Dr. Nicole Williams, founder of the Gynecology Institute of Chicago and author of the new book, This Is How You Vagina, all about your vajayjay and why you probably shouldn't call it that. It's available now wherever books are sold. Dr. Williams, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sasha Ann. This was a blast. Well, that's it for today's Reset. For more of our interviews, subscribe to this podcast. And please give us a rating. It helps other listeners find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.